Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 387, and I had a conversation with Dr. Brendan Kwiatkowski. Brendan, a former secondary school teacher, is a researcher specializing in adolescent boys' relationships to their emotions and how they develop those emotions into adulthood. He teaches courses at the university level relating to gender and education. His TikTok, which is where I found him, uh, is incredibly successful, and he discusses his work there. He's amassed a huge following. It's a really interesting TikTok. I recommend it. Links will be on heyhumanpodcast.com, links page. He's also a musician. We discuss all sorts of stuff, natural biases in education and society, and how that affects masculinity, how we're raising our boys, how boys interact around adolescence with the their surroundings and other people and other boys. And we talk about the reclaiming of masculinity and a lot more. Such an interesting conversation. I want to take a moment to say if you are feeling helpless right now, as so many of us are, and you want to help in a financial way, and you're not sure where to turn or which charities are trustworthy or what the work that they do, if they're really doing it, that kind of thing. There's a website that's vetted charities. They grade them. They spell out everything for you. So you can go there and see what the charity does, if they're highly rated, if they do the things they say they're going to do, all of that. And that's called charitynavigator.org. So charitynavigator.org. If uh, you're looking to help out in some way with a charity, go to this site. It's great. I've used it myself, and they're not paying me to say so, but I think it's really helpful in a tumultuous world where we want to do something, we're not sure what to do, and we're not even sure if what we do is helpful. So just wanted to throw that out there. Okay, check out A Human Podcast for links and to learn more about my guests and the show. Check out SusanRuth.com to learn more about me and my other artistic endeavors. Follow Susan Ruthism and Hey Human Podcast on social media. Find my albums on Apple Music, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your music. I actually just recently took my stuff off of Spotify. I've got to decide if I want to put it back. Uh, They have now announced that they're not going to pay artists uh, under a certain level. And I am morally and economically opposed to that. I think it's unfair that if... Spotify uses content. If people go and listen to the music, that those creators should be paid for their intellectual property and their music and their artistry. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing the show around. Uh, Be there for each other. Be love. Be kindness. And take care. Here we go. Dr. Brennan Kwiatkowski, welcome to Hey Human. Thanks for having me. I learned about you on TikTok, as one does, and your videos really caught my attention because of the topic of masculinity and boys and how boys are being raised and how they're moving through the world now comparatively to their historical upbringing. It's really interesting work. Tell me about where you came from and where you grew up. Yeah, I grew up in a place called Langley, which is like 45 minutes away from Vancouver in British Columbia, Canada. 
I, my background with gender, in hindsight, I can track it pretty well. Um, my first memory of something that I would call gender was in church, just looking at the bulletin and always just reading through it as a child might do when church services go along and always noticing that whenever there was a woman children's coordinator they would call them children's coordinator but if it was a male children's pastor they call them children's pastors and i just remember that was my first like question like oh why is a coordinator sometimes and not and then of course you get into debates about whether women can be preachers or pastors things like that but I would, wouldn't say that I paid attention to gender much consciously until I was doing my master's after I'd become a high school teacher, doing my master's in special education, was drawn to working with students diagnosed with emotional and behavioral disorders, and 81, found out 81% of them are male. And so that kind of started my academic journey of like, how much is biology, how much is social socialization pressures and that really got me on the topic of masculinity but then of course looking back it's like oh yeah this has shaped a lot of my life and a lot of a lot of aspects of my life not everything but it's been a sizable thing in my own life i'm curious to know what your take is on how kids present themselves given that well, you've had the experience of being a high school teacher, and I'm just wondering, is how they present themselves a big deal? Uh, in other words, I feel like adults make a far bigger deal out of how kids self-identify these days. It wasn't even something that we talked about, really. I mean, I, I guess people are like, oh, that kid is goth or <laughs> punk rock or uh, stuff like that, but it didn't seem that people were too concerned about whether kids thought of themselves as straight or gay. And that might be my naivete, but that's just what it seemed like. Are you talking specifically about how they identify or just if is gender something relevant to their lives? I think they're both relevant questions for sure. Yeah, like the percentage of students that identify as anything but cis um, it is pretty limited like i've definitely like even in my research of grade 12 boys like i had 170 participants and i think in that process three identified as trans males um or non-binary so it's a very small percentage um and so it's kind of like in to answer the first part of the question is that yeah that people generally teenagers aren't going around and being like i'm cis um obviously that matters way more to people that have less normative experiences but yeah there's that's a complex topic but in just terms of does gender or does your presentation of masculinity or femininity does that matter in high school? Yes, that very much does. And I can definitely, I can speak to both, but definitely without a doubt, masculine pressures, the pressures to be seen as cool, as accepted, are very closely connected with what one values for teenage boys and men to be. In your opinion or research, how early in a child's life does society begin shaping or morphing people into an identity 
of masculinity or femininity? I think there's, well, there's lots of research that it happens. Like I've talked, maybe you saw the TikTok, like around the age five is a significant time period, but there's all these different elements. And I'm not trying to say everything is like, well, I think most of it's not bad and bad intention, but you see gender reveals on TikTok and people finding out the gender of their baby or the sex of their baby more specifically and like all disappointed and people start formulating like what their dreams are of these children and how having a son might differ from having a daughter and the things that you might do so you start thinking about your children with a lens that can direct them towards a certain uh notion around masculinity or not and a major one that happens around age five but starts even earlier is uh, pushing boys away from their negative quote unquote emotions, particularly sadness and fear. It breaks my heart that we have this rhetoric around how boys should or should not feel things. It's, I think it causes a lot of today's issues for sure. Yeah. And there's like interesting lenses and we can get into more conversations here, but I just want to preface to your audience that like, there's lots of different crises that impact girls as well as trans um, kids. But for boys is that another sociological trend is that boys in their adolescent years can be viewed by parents as a bit more hands off that like, Oh, they're more even keel. And in a sense, this kind of like, a justification or of like not to be as involved because they think that their sons are just like kind of more even keel not as emotional so many times in my research when i told people what i was researching the emotionality of teenage boys so many times people were semi-jokingly being like oh what emotions teenage boys do they have emotions and things like that and my research definitely speaks to the extent that teenage boys yes they think very deeply and are very keenly aware about their emotions and the vast majority of them want to talk to someone about them. I imagine in that work, you had a lot of heartbreak. I, I just, I think about, it's hard enough to be a teenager or a kid in the world and to think about creating a powder keg, if you will, of, just tamping down thoughts and feelings, thoughts and feelings. I'm not allowed to say what are go very deeply or I can't connect with dad because he'll think I'm a coward or I can't connect with mom because I have to be the man of the family or whatever the that is. Yeah, a major reason was to not burden other people. I don't want to bring other people's moods down. So I'll grin and bear it. Mm hmm. What was the entry point for you into your research? In my master's research, I had worked with male students with emotional behavioral needs, and I developed a year long program to work with these boys where me and the counselor, we did like psychoeducation for the first semester. And then the second semester, they mentored boy students from a nearby elementary school. So we taught them and then they got to teach and it was a really powerful experience. And there was kind of like this assumption that exists in the literature and also exists in my own mind about 
how important emotionality is to healing. Sometimes you'll hear this most reductively on social media of like, I'm going to teach my boy that's okay to cry and he won't grow up to be toxic. I think that's a gross oversimplification that like, yeah, emotionalities or just crying about something, being able to cry is great, but it's not the end all be all. It's not necessarily meaning like you're going to be socially just or empathetic um, to all these things. So what I looked at in my research was like this notion of emotionality is emotionality, this silver bullet that we think it is. And so I compared teenage boys in grade 12. Um, I compared their experiences and beliefs about being male and about masculinity based on their level of emotional expression. And overall, the highly emotionally expressive teenage boys and the highly emotionally restricted teenage boys had way more in common with each other's experiences than what differed. But the main thing that differed was the level of loneliness that the boys who are highly emotionally restricted felt. It's, it's nuanced, it's complex. Sometimes being emotionally restricted, that benefited them based on their given situation. Like it always made sense of, as to why they restricted their emotions. And that was another important insight was that these boys that were highly emotionally restricted, because I had to inform them like why they were selected to be interviewed based on their screening tools. And <laughs> it's kind of, kind of like, Hey, yeah. So we showed that you were like kind of one of the least emotionally expressive boys that did these questionnaires and answered these questions. Does that match? Your, like, how does that sit with you? And they're all like, yep, that makes sense. Yeah. They, they owned it. And when I talked to them, I thought some of them would be like, yeah, this is the way I've always been. But none of them were like that. They all knew when and why they started to restrict their emotions. It was often a gradual process, but they knew the time period and what was going on in their lives. So it's like approaching these conversations with like nuance and complexity that sometimes emotionally restriction, emotional restriction is really advantageous and adaptive in the moment. But it also leads to like poor mental health or it can lead to loneliness and feeling like you're going through life by yourself and then you can get stuck if you can't figure something out by yourself so there's nuance and there's also like no actually having someone safe to express your feelings with is a really healthy thing i remember when i was in high school ninth grade uh my girlfriends and i there were woods across the street from my family's house in our neighborhood and my girlfriends and i would meet up on this one hill that overlooked the town and we would sit and talk up on that hill for hours and I remember some of the conversations things like my father is doing this or my stepfather doing that or my mother's doing that or my brother or whatever and so much raw feelings and material and we would not necessarily have the answers for each other but certainly at least we were there to hear it and, and bear witness for lack mm -hmm. of a better way to put it. And if I'm in my understanding that boys don't have that same, they don't do that. Would it, maybe they go and play sports together, but they don't sit and talk or is that what you found? Well, the thing is because I compared the least and the most emotionally restricted. So for my sample size of 170, 
it fit a pretty normal distribution curve, meaning that the the assumption that like teenage boys don't talk or they don't have that, yeah, it applies to a chunk of them, but there's also a chunk of them that it doesn't apply to and that they have really rich emotional lives. So I would not, yeah, I would not put the categorization as that some boys, the culture around emotions is exacerbated for boys and so there can be a tendency and a less acceptance and likelihood to not talk but a lot of boys have have people to talk to as well and even the boys that were highly emotionally restricted who didn't like talking to others they a lot of them described this complex situation where they had like one person in their lives that they felt like they could possibly if they really needed to but they just didn't and that comes down to one they just always kind of felt like if i tell them will they view will they think lesser of me and will they actually really want to hear so they had like yeah maybe they want to hear but they didn't actually believe that anyone actually wanted to hear what they had to say Mm -hmm. something you said a minute ago about them being able to pinpoint so they had a ground zero they said, oh, that's the place where I began to guard or put my walls up. When they had those moments with you of understanding, oh, that's the spot, that's the flashpoint, did you, did you see them get into it and be able to open up and release that moment? Uh, it wasn't like a therapy. Well, I think there's a level of it, but it's not ethically. Like, it wasn't... It's more descriptive than like, let's go and process the trauma that happened at the time. So that wasn't done. But like what some of the, this was the interesting anecdotal evidence is that like the boys that were more emotionally restricted, I would say that they opened up more to me than the boys that were highly emotionally expressive. And some of them said like, oh yeah, this is the deepest conversation I've had in maybe ever maybe because they don't have those as frequently so then if someone's asking them more intentional questions it was a chance for them and they really enjoyed it they described enjoying the experience so here's the fascinating thing is that even if those boys that had really walled up and suppressed and they some of them didn't know how they would ever get those walls down again it, they still had such a keen awareness of what was going on. It's not like they said this and they're like, oh, that's totally when it happened. They were actually like already aware that these had happened, these, this process had happened. For instance, the parents' divorce was a common, it was a trend. I observed it and definitely multiple participants that like, oh, my parents are going through enough stuff. I don't want to add to that so i'm going to be the strong one and so you have like these on paper highly emotionally restricted boys who are also talking to me and saying i know that me suppressing my emotions now might have consequences 10 years from now that i might blow up at some small thing in the future because i bottled down my emotions now which takes a high level or a decent level of emotional awareness to even know that you're suppressing and the consequences of that suppression and still doing it. So yeah, there's a lot, like in some ways they're thinking about emotions 
almost more than the highly emotionally expressive people is an argument you can make because they're highly aware that they cannot express emotions or should not. And so they're like constantly policing themselves. And sometimes in ways that I was really surprised at, because you think like BC, Whistler, snowboard culture, there's like, it's a cool masculine thing to be a good skier or snowboarder. But like one of the boys described like, yeah, he loves snowboarding. He goes, he's pretty good at it. But when they did a school trip, he's like, I was, I was so tame because I didn't want it. If I accidentally got hurt and risked crying in front of my peers, that would be terrible. So he like, didn't go all out snowboarding, trying to do fancy moves, which was kind of not what I expected. Also, it's interesting to think that to have the empath, the empathic understanding that, oh, if my parents are going through something, I don't want to add to their burden. That takes an emotional intelligence as well. I mean, it's terrible for a kid to feel that way, obviously. Totally. And there, this happens a lot. Like there's a term called parentification of children having to manage their parents' emotional states. Been there, done that. <laughs> Wait, did you have to do that? To an extent, yeah, for sure. Or um, how can I, what would be the most accurate term? Yeah, not, not in the extent that some of the boys I talked to had to do, but in certain situations and certain time periods of my life, I took on a lot of my parents' emotional distress and took that on as my own. Yeah, and I've had to do some healing from that. Right. I mean, heal thyself, right? And most of the, I feel like most of the work that we're drawn to, there's that old saying that uh, you give to the you give to the world the love that you didn't get. If you're if you are in a healthy, if you're on a healthy path, if you're not destructive with the pain of the loss of not getting the love that you required. Mm-hmm that you will actually put it out in the world and try and help others. That's like the positive side. There's the, the shadow work and the light work. Totally. Yeah. They can, they can be polarized in that. And, but yeah, not, I haven't heard that, but I've heard something similar of like the things that you whisper to your newborn baby are the things that you wanted to hear the most. Oh, oh so, my you're, you're a parent. Yes. I have three kids. Where in the process of your research were you having children and how did that affect your understanding of fatherhood, parenthood, personhood? Yeah. So I had one daughter when I started my PhD and then what 2020, I was doing my field work, going to schools, getting enough participants. So I had statistical significance and I got the required participants I needed on a Friday, the twins, I had twins, or my wife had twins, uh, came on a Sunday, and then COVID lockdown happened 10 days later. So long story short, my PhD took like a year longer than I planned after that. And that is important, because I, I needed to be with my family as the main priority there. And so I sacrificed a lot of sleep, not just twins, but when the twins were sleeping, that's when I did most of my PhD in the early hours of the morning. I, I would say that re- relevant to my research is that being a parent 
like how I view most of life and how my philosophy of education is really around the idea of interruption. I love like one of the purposes of education, I think, is to interrupt people's status quo and to be like, oh, they cause like a little bit of discomfort that causes growth and evolving ideas and conceptions. Parenting for me has been a huge catalyst or an invitation for me to heal parts of my younger self that I would not have such a clear mirror for. So that's been a powerful thing. I think that prior to having kids in general, I thought that like the debate is pretty much a subtle debate that like nurture and nature both matter. I also really appreciate epigenetics that our environment actually impacts how our methylation of DNA and then changes gene expression and um, how that influences certain traits as well. But I would say that prior to having kids, I think I would have said that I was way more heavily on the nurture part of things and just seeing even twins, they're not identical. I love Lord of the Rings. Like one of my twins is like this cliche of like rainbows, unicorns, all these things. Another one of my twins just like loves my, I have a miniature Balrog from Lord of the Rings, which is like a demonish character. She just loves black and loves all these things. And I think it's like, yeah, I don't know what that is. It's just cool to see different personalities and some things that are just uniquely them. And I think parents, when it comes to gender, can have a bit of a confirmation bias. Imagine even if your children were a blank slate and you have a girl that is like a stereotypical girl that likes pink dresses type thing. And you think like that is the way that girls are. I think it's easy to look at a small sample size and be like, yes, this is 100% biological. Whereas when you actually look at a small sample size, and when you get zoom out and you see a large sample size you see like how much more overlap boys and girls like are how much more in common and similar there are than they are different did you see the barbie movie yes i did what'd you think of it um i need to see it again but i i made a tiktok on that and i'd say my main like there's so many different layers to unpack from that movie but one i know that some people were offended by it i definitely was not in that category i think i the thing i appreciated most about it is the acknowledgement of how all of our healing journeys i'm talking about between sexes genders how they all impact each other like you heard this expression like hurt people hurt people and i think healing the opposite is true that like healing begets healing the more healing that we can do, we can help catalyze the healing of others and how we're connected in that way and how, yeah, we, our actions don't exist in a vacuum, that we have impact on other people. And there's all these ways that women and girls have been disconnected. And I like the, the self-awareness piece that like Barbie, the Barbie doll, like for some women was like an empowering second wave feminist, be whatever you want. But for other people, it was like body shaming and totally into like the unrealistic beauty standards. Like I, I'm all about acknowledging the complexities. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. And uh, what I found so interesting about that film too was their willingness to 
I mean, obviously there was a lot of poking fun of things, but the the scene of the Kens sitting around the fires all playing the guitar, and that was a hilarious moment. But it also really speaks to something that you said earlier about how they are concerned about what their peers will think of them if they don't fall into sort of a, a line of what everybody else is doing. What, what will happen if I'm a better snowboarder? What will happen if instead of playing this guitar for Barbie, I do something different that actually expresses who I am instead of what I think is expected of me? And then the idea, I read a lot of articles about it. The, the whole thing really fascinated me just because of the response to it. it was so gigantic, both, as you said, negative and positive. The, the feedback was loud. And I thought it was really interesting. So many people spoke about the Allen doll and, oh, he's gay. He's got to be gay. Oh, he's clearly gay. And I thought, he's just not toxic. And interesting that if you take a character that isn't doing that hyper-masculine toxic model you just then have to hang the word gay on them yeah and i could be wrong on this but isn't he the only male barbie that's actually living he's living with the other discontinued barbie the pregnant one so yeah Um, modern he's a modern doll (laughs) yes um, I, don't know, I just found that movie so fascinating. I'm curious, did you find yourself, I, you, you're saying that you see the differences in the, the kids, but did you catch yourself doing things that you thought, oh God, I'm I'm just doing something because I think that this girly girl is, is going to love this because she's a girly girl. a teenager? Uh, no, I mean, now oh. as, a par- as a parent, do you catch yourself sort of in the bias and then go, oh, I had to step back a second. I definitely did when I was a teenager. Definitely tried to do things to impress. I mean, as a parent to a child, as you're raising children. Okay, I, I'll think about this deeper. Like, my first reaction is, it's like, I think I've done a lot of unpacking in the area. Like, I don't have anything that comes to mind of, yeah, of an expectation. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's a boring answer. It's I not don't boring. find myself... Yeah, I don't find myself that's something that I wrestle with or grapple with. Did you have conversations with your partner saying, hey, let's let's raise these kids this way? Or it was it just you just sort of jump in? I don't have kids, so these are all fascinating topics to me. Yeah, like so like, yeah, we it's not that I want I don't want to say like I'm blind or I'm ignoring the the fact that like I could have unconscious biases for sure i've just done a lot of work to actually look at them i would say if anything when my first daughter if anything yeah it was like the harder harder thing for me the way i noticed that coming up was when she was like everything that she she wanted to wear like what's that teflon i don't know two no tool tool is the oh tool the 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 tool. yeah stuff like, under the stuff in like tutus yeah. i was just thinking oh all of the people that know me and my research i do are like oh he's raising the most feminine stereotypical girl ever and it was like that was where i felt like i just needed to overcome my own like there's some things that she just loves and it would be just like it's an i would deem it inappropriate to tell a boy not to play with a doll because he's got to play with trucks and same thing of like she loves unicorns and some of that might be socialized and some of it might be 
just like she loves the colors. And so, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm down with that now. That was just uh, something that did come up early on. Yeah. I, I love the nurture nature debate, especially as I, on this show, I've had a lot of people on where we've talked about the idea of through the, the line of DNA that we take on characteristics of, or pain, or that suffering lives in us down the line, as does joy and hope, as does being able to play the piano, or being able to paint, or speak a language easily, or whatever it is, that if those things come down through a line, why not all the other? Why not emotion along with uh, tangible things? I find it so interesting. Yeah, we know that what babies are, like the amount of cortisol or stress that babies are exposed to in utero uh, can influence their ability to regulate stress as well. Emotional state, nervous system, that passes down. But they've also done fascinating studies with rats or mice, I can't remember, where they traumatize rats to be, a, they get electrical shock every time they're exposed to a cherry smell, which natural. Have you come across I've this? Seen, yes, I've have. seen this research. It's fine. Go ahead, though. I'm yeah. Well, the fascinating thing is that they've done it in a couple different studies, but one they just tested the male sperm. So they they did these mice, these lab rats, traumatized them. Then they stopped, and then they got the sperm from these and in vitro implanted them with a, a female mouse, and then their baby was also had a trauma response when they were exposed to the cherry smell without which, any experience within the experience so any social itself. like you can that's a good way for ruling out they were taught or it was communicated no it was something even carried on the sperm that indicated like somehow this was inherited and passed down so yeah i think that was so fast blew open doors into that research i feel like when yeah, I think I find epigenetics as such a fascinating field for yeah, sure. Yeah, me too. Especially where it comes to addiction and things like that. I think it's really interesting. In your work, you found, as you mentioned before, I believe you said 80% of uh, higher instances of, was it loneliness? Of, of students of students who like fit the category. And there's different names for it depending on what country or what state you're in. But like emotional and behavioral disorders around 81% of students are male with those designations. And there's a debate about are boys overrepresented, are girls underrepresented? And I think there's, there's definitely some of both, I think. And I had read somewhere about your work that you had found also that girls are pulling ahead of boys in studies and school and doing better in school. The suicide rate is much, much higher for boys do you want to talk about that work a little bit what you learned yeah there's well here's the tricky thing because this so quickly in the polarized world that we live in devolves into suffering contests is that there is tons <laughs> yeah. there's tons of things that boys are disproportionately impacted by or like yeah their school achievements their university rates there's a lot of different things that people can point to. And so I don't love when it's done in a, I'm not, not implying you're doing this at all, but when it's done like in a whataboutism way, but like just in a way that, yeah, this suicide is a very significant topic for teenagers in general, but the disproportional death rates for boys is significantly higher as well. 
And so there's lots of theories and aspects related to that. And yeah, that, that matters to me too. I, that's actually part of why I even got interested in my master's because like one of my favorite students died from suicide early on in my teaching career. And, and yeah. And so anyone who's been impacted by the death of a loved one, that's a very significant life event. That's like, what can we do? And so there's, yeah, there's, there's a host of stats to look at. And I think sometimes we don't make a big enough deal about them. And sometimes we make too much a deal about them. And sometimes there's other stats that add a bit more nuance. Like for instance, in Canada, yes, boys have a lower graduation rate than girls do. But then if you look back at looking at race, if you look at Aboriginal students, Indigenous students, they're it's like it's way lower than boys or girls like so we, sometimes we focus so much on the gender dynamic and not focusing on race or how poverty or generational trauma like residential schools impacts all of these things as well so yeah it's a complex issue i would imagine if you could find causation on the research saying oh well if boys aren't talking about their feelings if they're doing it so much less than girls it would make sense that when you put all those feelings I could, I understand how that could lead to causation. And I'm sorry about your student. I would normally, when somebody speaks of someone who has passed, I like to say their first name to honor mm -hmm. them. But since it's a minor, I am, I'm, I'm understanding that that's uh, not a good idea, but just know that, that they're in my thoughts. When it comes to things about pulling ahead, the girls pulling ahead in school, part of my brain goes to, well, I think for a long time, girls were not given opportunity to pull ahead mm -hmm. in a lot of ways and now the research and the rhetoric is more focused like stem and and saying oh wait girls are smart too who knew did you find that to be part of it or was this really more about emotional state no i actually i my thesis was too long but i had a whole section about the school aspect of it as well and so here's one of the things that i often see missing from the conversation about boys underachievement or boys lower achievement is that i think there's a lot of different dynamics going on let's not even talk about social economic or race is that for if we talk about like choice and a lot of like jordan peterson's of the world want to talk about equality of opportunity versus equality of outcome it's like oh we do we actually want to force 50 50 splits between like education standards and things like that or just want to have the same choice um they have the choice or the opportunity to do these things and i'm just curious that we don't talk about boys as choice in education as much because there is a thing observed in not just my research but depending on the culture of the school like some schools that were ib league schools it's like okay it's almost shoot for the moon go for academia but there's also a culture of like a lot of my friends aren't taking academic classes. I'm not going to like, I kind of might go that way, but you know what? I'm going to just enjoy my time in high school. And there is some evidence that boys tend to have that attitude more than girls where girls sometimes view can be more likely to view education or post-secondary education as like, that is their pathway to whatever they want to do. Whereas, 
there's still, if you look at the job field workforce, is that there's still like a lot of trades that aren't necessarily the academic route. And so the diverging paths also can add to the uh, underachievement in boys. I also do think that schools, though, what I will say is that schools can heavily favor written responses. How well can you write down your thoughts and feelings and reflections? And if you're a girl, you might have more experience like journaling your thoughts or just even expressing your thoughts about things. And so one thing I always try to do in my classes, which regardless of gender, is just like some students just like talking more. And so I often, as much as possible, instead of writing down something, if you want to have a one-to-one meeting with me and talk that way, I would say that 75% of the time it was boy students that were taking me up on that. And that was one way that I was finding more equitable achievements. But Good on you. I have to call that out. Good on you because I think so many teachers in my own experience of growing up and going to schools, and I hope that they're better about this now, uh, that they court order drill. All students get treated the same. They're going to be taught the same. They're going to be listened to the same. They're going to be yelled at the same without any understanding that everyone learns differently. Everyone comes to a problem differently. Everyone has their own shit they're going through, all of that. So good on you for for realizing that because I think that that's not always the case. And it's good to hear that there are teachers out there that understand that some people just do things differently. Yeah, it's a, it's been a huge change. I would say all of the new teachers graduating are learning these concepts like univer- UDL is a huge one in education, universal design for learning. So being like having multiple means of engagement, having multiple means of uh, showing, of of giving the information and then having multiple means where students get to reflect their knowledge back. That is something like I, I train future teachers. So hopefully I do know this. <laughs> um, so yeah, I would say that there's been a huge paradigm shift, but obviously everyone has a bad experience and may with with one teacher and that can cloud your whole judgment about the whole profession and like like i love teaching i love teachers i'm gonna always support teachers but i'm also gonna acknowledge that like the worst part about teaching is bad teachers sure that's just like it'd be weird to not acknowledge that people have had painful experiences and maybe shame-based experiences dr Brene brown says that like shame is the number one classroom management tool so yeah people have been shamed out of a lot of a a lot of things i'm glad that nowadays teachers know more about learning uh, learning issues like dyslexia or apraxia or any of those things too to, to help guide kids um and yeah i i think teachers are incredible and we need them and they need to be paid more and I'm a big champion and they need to have supplies and they need to be more teachers so that they have less kids in their rooms and all those things. And if I ruled the world, boy, there'll be some changes. <laughs> yeah. And no, there's so much fascinating things to talk about teaching as a profession of like, you said only be male teachers. And one of the big arguments is like schools are overly feminized. 
with there's too many female teachers and it's like i think it would be great to have more just representation and especially at elementary schools like i i just think diversity is a strength and so i can't i don't know what the stat is in the states but there's a lot of tension points like of teachers especially in the states the money and being on the front lines of like all of being on the front lines like during covid where i know so many teachers did not want to be on the front lines and then of course like soji protests sexual orientation gender identity happened in canada recently too and the books ban being banned yeah we're in a very strange time yeah there's there's always fear present but there's a lot of i would say like specifically about the messages being said about what's happening in schools versus on the ground of what's happening in schools around soji is like night and day it's like we're living in different realities and like my like so much so that like when i talk to teachers they're like what do they think that we are doing in these schools yeah, yeah. so today class we're gonna learn how to strip tease <laughs> what <laughs> It's yeah, just, that's that's the impression you get. I know it's insane. It's not okay. It's yeah, like every teacher that I know is just like, I want my kids to feel safe at school and like cared for, and like I also wanted to like teach them a community that's welcoming, and they're not focusing on yeah, and like hopefully focusing on actually like teaching them how to read and how to do all these other things. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that there is a vilification movement against boys and men? I think people think that, and I think that the people that think that see that. Um, and what I mean is that my algorithm is quite crazy because i i feel like i'm everywhere on the polarization like I, I i like engaging with people that disagree with me and i feel like that's where i want to be because if i'm like i think one of the things of working with teenagers i love the fact that they're just going to call you out on your shit and like if if they don't think anything is genuine it's like so i'm very used to honesty and brutal honesty and <sighs> not that like i i don't love vitriol and i don't like en encourage it but i'm also feeling like yeah i don't want to just be talking to people who have the same similar mindset that i do right echo and chambers so, don't help anybody yeah definitely i think the 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 people that feel like there's a war on masculinity and a war on men you can find that war yeah you can find feminists that or yeah you, you can find find those arguments you can find those comments online that are dehumanizing of of men and of masculinity do i i don't think that what that said is that like let's take the term toxic masculinity let's take that because i actually don't like using that term the term toxic masculinity people think and people will argue that that is means all masculinity is bad and i feel like for adults who take that like it's really hard for me to be like, is that your genuine understanding of what the critique is about harmful forms of masculinity? Or are you willfully misrepresenting that to have kind of to create like a victim perpetrator mentality? The, the heightened polarized state of our world around masculine gender to many people, it feels like there's a war. 
And I think that prevents actual healing from, from happening. I love, yeah, I would love it if dehumanization didn't go on in it. Like, obviously, that would be my magical ideal world if no one dehumanized. And I would love it if we could listen and withstand other people's distress and anger. There's a really, my, one of my favorite um, quotes from a Ojibwe person, Richard Wagamese, said, no one wants an angry Indian, they only want a grateful one. And he used to speak at the Canadian government all the time. But he said, for years, I was so angry. And no one wanted me to speak. But then as soon as I kind of had a more reconciliatory, grateful message, then the Canadian government was like, speak at all these events about truth and reconciliation. What stuck with me from that is just our ability to handle people's people's pain i i don't think men and boys this is a, a wide brush let's add to the polarization but hopefully not too much is that <laughs> i'll send you all the angry letters <laughs> yeah, is that like i don't feel like a lot of women have felt seen in their experiences and pain and what i see the alt-right or the far oh, men's rights often doing is they feel like their pain has already been noted and you don't see my pain. And that's a lot of the whataboutisms. And I, I, I have, I side on the onus is on men to like, just for a historical lens as well, to see other, to hold other people in their process and pain. And just to be able to like, be like, yeah, someone's angry. That makes sense. Like they've been hurt as opposed to getting our backs up so quickly and being like, yeah, well, I have pain. It's like, yes, for sure. I want to live in a world where both of those are, are valid, but not canceling each other out, being like, oh, well, we all have hard things that we go through. I think, yeah, it's, it's one of those nuanced things. I think you're good in your comments on TikTok about uh, holding people's, holding what people's feelings are, giving it space. Because I remember one of the posts you did, you were making a comment about when at what age girls start being sexualized mm. and uh, of course the women came out and you you would uh, you would put it at a particular age and all the women or women identifying peoples came forward like actually <laughs> it was way younger than that and this is what happened and you were really graceful with how you uh dealt with everyone i thought you know and I, I think you didn't have to be that way, certainly, of course, but because as what you just spoke to, you have an ability to know that all things are true and no things are true. <laughs> well, I, okay, I'll also say that, like, I'll come at this naturally. Like, so my PhD is pretty intentionally, I'm not a psychologist, I'm, it's, but my PhD is mostly psychology, but it's right between psychology and sociology. And I am intentionally that way because I feel like sociology, general trends needs to talk more with psychology, like the individual. I think sometimes some people have just an individual lens and some people view things more sociologically. And I feel like the back and forth is important, but I hated sociology when I was in university. <laughs> and the reason why I hated it was because every time there's a general trend, I would be like that kid in class being, actually, one class i um, won't pay myself so badly but like i was like well i'm the exception to this or like i have an exception or i know i can think of all these exceptions that's the thing with sociology no one's life lives a purely sociological life 
there's always these context things. There's also a, a good research paper that's called Fuck Nuance. And it's a sociological paper of being like, sometimes you can get so lost in the complexities that you end up saying nothing meaningful. And so I think trends are important to acknowledge the collective pain that women and girls have gone through and in other areas that boys and men have gone through. And there's also times for individual, your situation doesn't match the sociological trends, but it totally is a legitimate experience. And so grade six, grade seven is a huge time period in the girl crisis of when they get more overtly sexualized with society. The fact that so many of them have been experienced that younger, totally that makes sense. I think the kind of the prime ages for like sexual abuse are like around between ages seven and 13. So yes, I, so like when I, when women are commenting that that's the experience, it's like hundred percent, I believe them and they've been sexualized that, yeah, the younger state, like I, I, yeah, I, I invite any listener to like the one thing that I want people to hold me accountable to is like, if I'm ever dehumanizing or like bypassing someone's lived experience or their process. Yeah. And there's an inherent ignoring of men and boys sexual abuse that they go through because it's also a lot and it's not really talked about right because there's even more shame around that yeah here's where the things get more messy or more nuanced like in british columbia i was doing research for my phd for the past 10 years every time they've done this adolescent study is that boys report more physical violence in their relationships from their female partners than female partners do for boys. And that is different than most research. And so, like, even when I included that stat part of my lit review for my research, there was like a lot of like, oh, like, what's actually going on here? Like, what's the unpacking? And there is things to unpack. They were talking about it, it, anything from like super severe to less severe of like, cheek slapping or like hitting someone like on the cheek but the fact that we don't view that as seriously for against boys against girls is something else to assess and unpack and i think this goes back to sometimes so many people their pain is being isn't being witnessed is not being seen is not being held and yeah that does happen within these gender wars quote unquote it's really it's so depressing but then i see people out there really doing this great work like you and i think okay it's hopeful because the conversations are being had and as long as people are talking about things i have a lot of hope actually and i don't know whether that's nature or nurture but it's also based on my experiences actually interacting and talking to boys and youth of any gender and twitter probably gives me the least amount of hope <laughs> there is so many things that are giving me lots of hope and i, I think th it can get harder to see it the more like in your experience you get but and i have and i think what goes back to the thing that's i have so much understanding for people who don't have hope as well because their experiences have led them to believe that no man can ever be trusted or their experience of led them to believe that I cannot open up to any female or they'll use my emotions against me. Like those are two really commonly cited experiences. Mm -hmm. 
where do you want to see your work go in the grand scheme of things? Where is it heading? What's on the horizon for you? And, and what can we do with this information? How do we move the needle forward and bring healing and understanding and more hope? Yeah, so I'll, I'll mention another, I'll, I'll say his name. My best, one of my best friends, Stuart, died during my PhD. He was killed in Edinburgh in a traffic accident. Mm -hmm. And he was researching violence against children, domestic violence against children primarily. And he grew up around the University of Edinburgh in Scotland in one of the towns that had one of the highest domestic violence rates. And he remembers growing up all these researchers coming from the University of Edinburgh and building careers off of researching this phenomenon and what to do but nothing ever changed on the ground level and so that's the type of person that my friend Stuart was and that epitomizes what type of work i want to be doing i can totally get caught up pontificating about philosophy and academia i do like that but if it's not making on the ground changes or if it's not like engaging with people and helping yeah so like i i'm working on a lot of things right now behind the scenes that is way more practical focused because that's probably my number one question especially from mums of boys which i seem to have a, a lot that are reaching out on like what can we tangibly do or teachers what can we tangibly do so i have a couple things that i'm working on and yeah right now after a lot of my tiktoks have gone viral more so there's been a lot of calls for collaboration but um, so I'm trying to, there's a lot of balls in the air, so to speak, but I hope I would love to be in a space where things don't stay on the intellectual realm, but also connect to the heart. And I think that is the way to get through some of the polarization so that humans can, can heal a bit more individually, as well as that healing begets healings and the help heal other people in their healing journeys at a more societal level so i would love to be in the space of what i'm doing that's my intention that's my when i create things is like i want it to be in the arena of of practical healing and transcending the polarizations to a certain extent understanding that realistically doing that isn't going to abolish polarizations or make everyone happy like that's not the goal <laughs> but the goal is or the goal for me is to be in these spaces where people have their experiences and they're valid and also that there might be some room for some chat for some interruptions that can bring healing to them and to others do you find on your social media that there are young people reaching out and saying hey do you have resources or can i talk to you is that happening increasingly yes I'm aside from the moms, I mean like the kids, you know, because I imagine you, it's that old saying, I'll leave the light on for you. Yeah. Well, there's some things like with certain ages that like, I, I would say a, a lot of it was more like young men who are like reflecting back on their childhood or just realizing now or parents who've like shown it to their kids and they're interacting with me. Like I haven't had any teenage, yeah, I haven't interacted with any underage kids about their own mental health i guess that gets a little hairy these days too doesn't it yeah I, yeah and then 
like yeah one there's a ethical things that like i wouldn't of course just even communicating and talking about something where i'm not a psychologist and like all of my psychotherapists psychologist friends like like no medical or no therapeutic advice online so that's not something that i would ever do with any age but the thing is the content i'm producing right now isn't like catchy enough for teenage boys anyways so it's not like uh, i'm not gonna oversell like how good my content is it's like no i'm not <laughs> making the content that they're gonna that's gonna naturally come across their for you page do you think that there is potential for men to re-parent themselves to get to the root of some of their pain that they suffered at the hands of their own emotions or lack thereof to get to the other side of course certainly yes a million times over yeah that's kind of like there's this paradox or i don't even know if it's a technical paradox i'm not english wasn't my background but the paradox that ultimately we are responsible for our own healing but that having community and people to support us is so helpful it still is up to us but like it's really helpful when there's help yeah for sure I think that pandemic really put a, a hiccup in in everyone's healing. It, it, it was a big time of retreat and distrust, mm. and I think many of us went backward in our in our journeys of mm. healing and hope, and and shut off a big part of ourselves, and we're slowly pulling ourselves out of the the merc <laughs> that's definitely that's definitely one experience i know there's research that more dads have taken off more time from work since covid because they enjoyed being with their families more so that's one counter narrative to that that's a great that's great i think too yeah that people realize wait a minute i don't have to be completely owing every hour of my life to my job i can experience things outside in the in the world and have peace from that yeah yeah you're i love the work you're doing i i think it's great i'm i'm glad you're doing it i hope that hope wins always <laughs> you tell people how they might find you yeah so my website is remasculine.com and they're like i'm most active on social media but i yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of changes to even what I'm doing this next year that I'm excited for of just changing things up so it can be one more practical, more tangible things. I want to do things that give me hope and um, more connecting to the heart of the issue rather than just always cognitive debates. Because obviously, as an academic, like I think the cognition, the intellect is really important, but I see the most healing and I have the most hope for healing when I see men connect to their hearts. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I'll put links on HeyHumanPodcast.com to make it easy for people to find you and your TikToks, of course. Okay. <laughs> thank, you, yeah. thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Susan. It's great talking with you. Yeah, you too. And thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Yeah. Bye. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.